that's the kind of worship my uh, heart needed to do. That's great. Just to sing with my church family. Something else that I'm really excited about right now is a uh, new launch of Rooted. If you have been with Chapel Street for any length of time, Rooted, you know, is something that's really important to us. The Rooted experience is a 10-week process of being in a small group, studying God's Word together, studying some of the kind of basics of what the Christian life is, the Christian message is. But most importantly, it's a way for us to grow in community together. It's designed not to just be a Bible study, but to be an experience that people can share together. And we're launching another round of it next Sunday. And we've got two groups here from North Aurora. One that's going to be led by uh, Mike and Lee Borge, and then one by Chris and Steph Weasby. Some of you guys know those people. Uh, and uh, Mike and Lee couldn't be here today, but I, I invited them to just share a little bit about why they value this so much. Uh, because I want us to capture as a church family a sense of why we do root it at all. So here's a quick message from Mike and Lee. Hey guys, we're the Borges, and we would like to invite you to join us to this next session of Rooted. Yeah, we've led a Rooted group before. We've been through Rooted in the past. Um, really great experience in terms of how we connected with the church and with other people. Um, and so we are excited to invite you to join us in that. Rooted takes a little bit deeper dive on foundational truths, and most important probably to us is that it really does build that sense of community. You get to know people not just on a surface level, but you really dive deep and really build rooted, deep connections with one another. And so we hope that you'll join us and build the community at North Aurora. So again, I just want to remind us what we came here to do when we launched this church, the heart was we want to live life in fellowship together before the God who's loved us and love our neighbors. And rooted kind of sits right in the middle of that because it's a chance for us to remind ourselves of what we believe and the people that we are in community with. And it also launches us towards thinking, how can we love those around us? So uh, I really want to challenge us. At, at some point, I would love for us to say that everyone in our church family here at North Aurora has been through a rooted group of some kind. If you haven't been through one yet, this is your opportunity. And I know what, if it was me in the seats, what I'm prone to do is go, I'm interested in that, and then it kind of falls away. So I want you to challenge yourself today. If, if this is something you know God is speaking to you to get more involved in community, to get to know more people here at church, to, to kind of ignite and bring a spring to your Christian walk, then I would challenge you to make sure that you register for it now. Like I say, we've got two groups. There's plenty of room. It's a great opportunity, and um, we don't want to miss that. So again, make sure you do that. You can uh, stop by the welcome desk. We can help you make sure you get that done, uh, or you can come see me. I'll help you with that as well. But right now, what I want us to do is, uh, because some of us have already been through Rooted, I just want to invite Chris Weasby up here. Uh, and Chris is leading one of our groups as well. I just want to pray together as a family for Chris and Steph, for Mike and Lee, that God would bless their groups, that God would use this. Because again, we don't want to be a church that just kind of busies ourselves with different kinds of groups and different things. Uh, we want to do what Mike and Lee told us about. We want to grow deeper in, in connection with one another. We want God really to transform our hearts. So to do that, we don't just need to show up, we need to pray. So would you pray with me for Chris and Steph and for Mike and Lee? Father, we thank you for this church family that you've given us. And we thank you for the beautiful message of the gospel, the hope of Christ Jesus, who is everything to us. And God, we pray that as uh, Mike and Lee and Chris and Steph lead in this next season of Rooted, God, that you would use these two North Aurora groups to make an impact where we are. God, we pray right now for everyone considering Rooted this season, God, that you would, you would push on them a little bit. You would get them to make this decision 
use this to impact them and to transform them and to encourage them. God, we pray for the Wearsbys and the Borges, Lord, that you would bless them in their leadership. Lord, that they would care for those in their groups well, that they would lead them well. Lord, that you would give them courage to share the things that you've done in their hearts and their lives. And, and ultimately, God, we pray that our rooted groups would bring glory to you because it would be a place where people encounter your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, brother. I looked at my daughter and realized that there was only really one option. And I wanted to make sure that she knew what a strong woman looked like and how we were gonna get through this with our faith and with our family. I had found out that my husband had committed suicide on January 22nd, the night before we had been looking for him. He just wasn't acting like himself. So in that moment, I just felt like the rug had kind of been taken out from under me. I felt like we had this life that we had created together, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I wasn't sure what the next day was going to look like. In that moment when you're told what you've lost, I just looked around and the room was full it was full of love still. My parents were there, my aunt and uncle were there, my closest friends were there, Pastor Jeff was there. That's how God revealed himself to me. He was like, look around at these blessings that you still have. Throughout all of this, I've always wanted Maeve to know that she's loved. And that that will never ever change, even though something was taken from us, she's still loved by, by God, most importantly. I think a lot of times people say that they understand, but there's like moments in the day where you just can't pick up and call somebody. When Maeve was doing this funny dance in the kitchen, I couldn't send a video to my husband. So it's like parts of your day that just become kind of lonely it's those little moments that become difficult. When I had taken some time off of work after all of this, I tried to work more with Radical Love, which is a ministry that helps with refugee families and seniors in our community. And I think that helping people was a good way to channel that energy and to not feel so lonely. If I could give something to someone, then it made me not feel so empty. With Radical Love, there's a lot of families that are coming from very tragic situations, so I do feel like a connection to that. I just think about some of the things that these people have gone through and have overcome, and it gives me strength. Community's always been very important to me. I don't think I leaned on my community. I was more of the helper. And the tables really turned this last year. And I needed the help. And I needed the support and the love and the friendship. I was given that back tenfold than what I've ever given anyone. I don't know how I 
would have done anything without leaning on God or the community. It's amazing the people that God puts in your life to move you forward on your path. When we share our stories with each other and just live in community with people that are very different from us but are still a lot of the same. We're all mothers, we're all fathers. We all live in an Instagram society where everything is photo touched and airbrushed and everything looks perfect, right? And life is not like that. Life is very messy. And I think the more that we talk about it, it normalizes that and makes it okay. It's not easy to share the most difficult part of my life. Grief is interesting because you never get over it. You move through it. I don't know how people grieve without God. I can't imagine not having God during something like this. I don't, I don't even know what that would look like. After that, that's that's like not kind to a pastor to have to preach after that. But here's why I think it's important that we watch that today together, because Abby just shared with us a beautiful, heartfelt, difficult, uh, but important testimony of why we do what we do, why we in this place, why do we proclaim Christ? Because as she closed that video by saying, "How do you do life without God?" How do you walk through the messiness of it and the chaos of it and everything else? And so often, I, I really appreciated what Abby shared with us about we do live in this Instagram culture where we kind of, church almost just becomes this thing that we do to cap off our nice, tidy life. And it, it's almost, we use church as this indicator of, I'm in church, so my life is nice and tidy in the way that it's supposed to be. But the truth is, actually, this place should remind us of our great need, our need of Christ and our need of one another. And we should come here to celebrate the fact that despite our lives being messy and untidy and difficult, that we have a God who sees us and loves us and wants to be present with us. And God, when God invites us into this place, he wants us to share those things that are on our heart. And if you are in a place where you are feeling some of the same pains and some of the same aches as Abby talked about, I want you to know that this place is a family where you can find encouragement in Christ. She said when she's with God's people, she feels full. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to travel through a series in Colossians where we're looking at the fullness of God. Because life is messy and not easy and we need to be filled up with God. And that's what Colossians is about. It's about being filled up with the life of Christ. Being filled up. Christ is the fullness of God. We want to be filled up in Him because that's what a full life is, is to be with Christ. Last week, we celebrated together the risen Jesus, the story of Easter, and in that story, we celebrated this moment when everything changed because of what Christ did. And so Colossians, really, it's, it's a book of the Bible that is a perfect follow-up to Easter, because what Colossians is going to do for us is kind of open up what does life with the risen Jesus look like? What should we think? What should we feel? How should we live differently? It's only four chapters long. It's a really short part of your Bible. I would encourage us throughout this series every week to read the whole book of Colossians. Easy to do. Probably less than 30 minutes to get through in a week. Read it a couple of times and let these words, this scripture go into your heart and remind you of who it is we worship when we come into this place. 
One of the most interesting things about Colossians, though, as a letter, is that as we get further into this, we're going to find out that this is kind of a little bit of a messy church. It's actually a really small church. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what life was like for them in a moment. But I, I wanted to start out by saying one of the things that the Colossians were struggling with is how to know what the gospel really was. They'd had this message about Jesus, but they'd had lots of messages around them. There was all kinds of things going on around them. All kinds of spiritual ideas, all kinds of philosophies, all kinds of cultures. And so they were really in need of someone helping them distinguish real gospel from fake gospel. They needed someone to explain to them, well, what, who is Jesus really? What is this message really about? What is it not about? And so as we kind of begin that journey of looking at what Colossians helps lay out for us, authentic Christianity, uh, I thought we could play a little bit of a game to kind of get ourselves ready for this. Uh, I have a, one of my favorite TikTok channels is a channel that's called Real or Cake, okay? So if Colossians is about identifying the real Jesus and the real Christian life, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a video. It's going to go pretty quickly, so you have to be kind of ready quickly. You have to decide if what you are, the object you're seeing is real or if it is actually a cake, okay? And so we want, I won't ask you to shout out loud. I'm just, I want you to keep score with yourself as it goes through. You have to decide, is the object real or cake? So here we go. Let's see if we can do it. Let's play real or cake. Fruit edition. Part one. Watermelon. Real or cake? It's real. I had to call in my left hand for backup on this cut. Pineapple. Real or cake? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's a cake. I hand cut and painted all those leaves. Totally worth it. Peach. Shocking. Real or cake? It's cake. Even though a lot of people mistake it for an apple. Banana. Real or cake? It is a cake. It's bruised. It had a hard life. <laughs> Apple. Real or cake? It's real. Okay. How many, who got, who got five for five there? Yeah? How many people are like traumatized by how many things looked like they were real? You're like, you're going home tonight and you're like, is my fridge real or is it a cake? You know? I like can't believe how realistic they look. And the truth is there's so many things in life that can look like Jesus and it's not Jesus. There's so many things that we can encounter in life that look like God and it's not God. And so what Colossians is, is the Apostle Paul is writing to a church to help them understand, is it real or is it cake? Is this real Jesus or is this a, a fake? As I said, there was many different ideas in Colossae. They didn't know the difference and they needed someone to help them guide through that. And if we're honest, so often we need some help in that. There's so many times as a pastor I'll encounter things online or people say kind of flippantly and I realize that the ideas out there about Jesus and about the gospel, there's a lot of bad ones. And so e even inside the church, we can come regularly, someone can be in a church attendant for years and years and years. And I, had, I knew a pastor in England who we would always ask people this killer question. He would say, if I was to ask you what, what the message of Jesus is, what would you say? And people would respond to that in so many different ways, but rarely would they respond in the way that the Bible does. People would say, well, it's to be a good person, it's to love your neighbor, it's to, to care for people. Rarely would people say it's about how much Jesus has loved me. It's about what Jesus has done for me. So what we're gonna do as a church is we're gonna travel through Colossians, we're gonna remind ourselves of the risen Jesus, and we're gonna distinguish real from cake. Who is the real Christ? What's he done for us? How should that change us? And today we're gonna start by looking at the Colossian church, how they were saved by gospel truth, how they were growing in gospel life, and how they were strengthened by gospel power. So let me start off for us. I'm going to read from Colossians 1. This is verses 1 through 8. We're going to look at how they were saved by gospel truth. Colossians starts this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, 
to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let me ask you this. What is exciting you most in your life right now? What is it that kind of gets you going? I was really excited this week because we got into springtime weather, finally, beautiful weather. Really, it was summer weather on some days. Uh, And so we got to get out on our bikes. I love getting on my bike. So I'm really excited for that. Looking forward to more uh, bike rides throughout the summer. Uh, If I'm honest, I'm far too excited about the finale of The Mandalorian next week. If any of you watch that on Disney+, Plus, you get me, you feel me. If you don't, you are feeling a little embarrassed for me right now. And that's okay. You one day will be converted by Din Djarin, The Mandalorian. But... I want, to, I want you to think carefully, what excites you? What drives you? What is it the thing that consumes your thoughts? Because for Paul, the thing that excites him more than anything else, it's not even a comparison, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It motivates him. He thinks about it all the time. When he hears stories about what God is doing around the world, his mind is transfixed on it. And Paul has heard about this small church in a city called Colossae. And he has heard about what God is doing there, and it excites him. So he writes them this letter. Now, if you're unfamiliar, I want to give us some background of where Colossae was, who were the Colossians. Because whenever you read a New Testament letter, it's so helpful to understand who are these people that Paul is writing this to. Because they're not us. right? Sometimes we read the New Testament and we we think that God has almost kind of written us with us in mind. But the, the truth is, he's written it with some specific situations and people in mind. And so the better we understand those, the better we understand what he's really saying to us. So the Colossian church was uh, in what is now southern Turkey. Uh, it's borders close to the Mediterranean. So you can see there, the, at the bottom side, that's the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, you'll see a couple of other cities on there that you might recognize from the Bible, like Smyrna or Ephesus. These, these were all places where missionary journeys were happening. Uh, Paul was going there. Other people were going there. They were sharing the story of Christ. But Colossae, what makes it interesting is Colossae was the smallest and probably the most insignificant of all the cities that you see there. At one time in history, Colossae had been this center, this hub of all kinds of cultural uh, diversity and industry. But as time had gone on, it had become smaller, it shrank. Some of these other cities had built up as the Romans built different roads going through. And so no one's really thinking about Colossae. And interestingly enough, Paul has actually never made a missionary trip to Colossae, but someone that Paul knew had, a guy called Epaphras. Epaphras was someone that Paul had met in Ephesus. He'd become a Christian, and he he went to Colossae and started a church there. And we think that that church probably actually looked a little bit like this church, about 100 people gathering weekly, talking about Christ, talking about what was going on. But they were struggling because there was so much going on around them in these other cities. There was so much other cultural influence, so many bad ideas out there. They, they needed a little help. And so Epaphras, knowing Paul, he journeys to see Paul, who's in prison at this point, And he says, would you write a letter? Would you, would you encourage our church in Colossae? And Paul loves to do that. 
So Paul is thrilled to do that. And so he writes this beautiful letter to the church in Colossae. And he wants to point their attention to one thing and one thing only, the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the good news of Christ, who he is, what he's done. His central encouragement for them is, I've heard about your faith in who? In Christ. And I've heard about your love for all the saints. I love what's happening where you are. I want you to think about that. Dwell on that. Think about what got you guys together in the first place. You know, every time a church needs encouragement, every time a group of Christians need an encouragement, the best response is not a new strategy or a new pastor or a new teaching or a new strategy, all all that stuff, what matters most is coming back to the truth of the gospel. That's what the church should be about in every generation at all times. Not programs and great worship bands. The life of the church should be about proclaiming Christ's resume, not building our own. It should be about seeing who he is, what he's done, not thinking about the ways that we need to be something or someone. And so Paul encourages them in this. And Paul tells them that everywhere the gospel's preached, everywhere we talk about this message, it's growing, it's thriving, God is doing amazing things. That's why I'm so excited that you've got your heart set on that. This, I want to read an account for you from the book of Acts of what happens when the gospel is preached. This is Acts 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was the gospel, and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The gospel is explosively powerful. It is life-altering. You ever heard someone say to you, uh, I've got something that's going to change your life. You're going to try this new thing. It's going to change your life. Try this new gym. Try this new food. Try this new diet. The gospel is the thing that will really change your life. It's not just a new strategy. It's a new person. It's a new life. And what it does is it creates this beautiful community of people that we just read about in Acts. People who share their lives with one another. People who care for one another. People who want to be together. And just to give you a picture of this, the people who were coming together in the early church, who were saved by gospel truth, were very different kinds of people. People who in any other circle would hate each other. And yet when the gospel is preached, they come together and they love one another. They lay their lives down for one another, literally in some cases. And so Paul's saying, this is what we're supposed to be about. All the wonderful things that are happening in you are because of this message. This is where it started, so keep your eyes fixed on it. I think it's worth mentioning, even this church here is a result of the gospel being preached. If you mapped out the entire length of Chapel Street's life, what you'd see is that at one point in time, the gospel was shared. First Swedish Baptist Church of Geneva, a small group of people. And they kept their hearts on the gospel. They kept their eyes on the gospel and it grew and it grew. Became First Baptist Church of Geneva. And then after that, we opened up a second campus on Kesslinger Road. And it grew and it multiplied. And the Lord added daily to those who were gathering together. And then 
we go to just two years ago, God was doing something here in this neighborhood. Church, Cornerstone Community Church was here. They had their eyes on the gospel. They were looking to gospel ministry. And God added to them and grew them. And we became Chapel Street North Aurora. See, this is, this is the lifeblood of the church is the gospel. As soon as the gospel starts being preached, the church will die or crumple. Truth is, is that when there's nothing in our lives we're tempted to do more than to shelve the gospel and make everything else more important. And we've got to do the opposite. We've got to say, this has got to be the chief goal of my life, is to know this message, to proclaim this message, to be with people who love this message, because everything else comes from that. But Paul doesn't just want them to be saved by gospel truth. He wants them to grow in gospel life. Growing in gospel life. You all remember when uh, kids have that stage in their lives where they discover the, the expanding sponges. You know what I'm talking about, where you'll get like a little sponge dinosaur, and on the package it reads, if you put this in a cup of water, or if you spray this with a hose, it will grow. And every kid looks at those packages and thinks, that's going to turn into a full-size dinosaur. And I remember this in my life. I remember I would go through the store and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I've got to have this thing. This little tiny sponge is going to grow into a full size. And you take it home and you get it in the kitchen. You start putting water on it. And even after an hour of soaking, it kind of grows like maybe an inch. And you're so deflated. And you're like, I've been robbed of my one dollar of buying this thing. And I think sometimes we think of the gospel that way. We think of it as this beautiful thing. But we think if we really pour ourselves into it, is it really going to grow that much? Is it going to do much? Or is it just another message of something that's supposed to change my life, but in the end, it doesn't really make a difference? That it's all talk, it's all noise. And friends, let me assure you, there is nothing more real in this world than the message of the gospel. There is nothing on which you can rely more, on which you can count more. There is nothing, not your 401k, not the state of politics in this country, not the state of what matters to your neighbors. The gospel is the one constant that will always grow and will always thrive. Paul knows this, and so he writes to the Colossians, verse 9. He says, and so from the day we had, we have not ceased to pray for you. From the day we've had what? That, we, that God's been present among you, that you are hearing this word of the gospel. So we haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What we find is because they were fruitful, because good things were happening, Paul actually asks for more of that. He says, I'm praying that this wouldn't just be a thing that you encountered one time, but your, your whole church would be filled with gospel life, that you would grow in gospel life. Because the message of the gospel, it isn't just a one-time ticket that we take and say, okay, one day I'm going to go to heaven now because now I've, I've figured this out with Jesus. The gospel is an invitation to be made new right now. Last week we celebrated that with baptism. We, talk, we have t-shirts that say made new on the back. And we say you've been raised to walk in newness of life with Christ. Because it's not just a ticket to heaven. The gospel is an invitation to a new life right now. Pastor Jeff tells this brilliant story of when he used to coach football. And one of the coaches said to him, you know what, you're, you're a pastor. I could, I could use a little bit of Jesus in my life. And Pastor Jeff says, well, he wants to be in your life, but he isn't little. The idea is that Jesus wanted to grow far beyond the expectations of anyone who's ever invited him in. There's three statements that Paul makes in this little 
prayer, he says, first, be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. From what we know about this letter, uh, we know that one of the things that was kind of circulating in Colossae was this idea called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism comes from this Greek word gnosis that means knowledge. And here's what the basics of it was, is that people thought if they filled their heads with enough information, they would be right with God. So Jesus just becomes one more idea amongst all kinds of ideas that if I get a little bit of this and a little bit of this, and I just, if I just know all the things that I need to know, I'll be good. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. It's not, it's not some secret knowledge. It's a person. It's not some philosophy. It's a person. You don't just need to know stuff. You need to know Jesus. You need to know his heart, his will, his life. I would say that we have a lot of Gnostic thought in our own culture. You know, we look on this, we think this is an ancient church. They had all kinds of weird religious things going on. But is it really that different to us to say that there are people around us who, who think that if they just know the right things, if they're in the right groups of people, they'll be okay? We hear people say things like, well, this is my truth, or this is my faith. And what they're really saying when you say something like that is that I'm, I'm building this out of the parts that work for me. And what Paul's saying is you can't do that with Jesus because he's a real person. He's not an idea that you can dissect and take this part and this part. He's a full living risen savior and you need to know him as he really is. Authentic faith in Christ is not a solid bar of different ideas. It's concerned with what Christ has truly said about himself. He's not just one figure on the Mount Rushmore of religious teachers. He is God incarnate. And that's why Paul specifically says, I want you to know God's will. Now, when we hear that phrase, God's will, I think what comes into our minds most often is this idea of kind of circumstances. I want to know, who does God want me to marry? What job does he want me to take? Which state does he want me to live in? We think about those things. That's God's will. But the truth is, that's really a very small portion of what God's will really is. The Bible tells us that God's will for you is that you would be transformed into the image of Christ. Paul is talking about God's sovereign will for his, his gospel to increase in the world, for people to know him and be in relationship with him. Not what job and place and time. Instead, what attitude, what longing should be in your heart, what hope. He's made known his will to us in his son Jesus. You notice that Paul doesn't pray for the circumstances of the Colossians. And to, just to be clear, the Colossians were going through a lot of stuff. There was infighting in their church. There was confusion in their church. But Paul doesn't say, hey, I pray that all that stuff would stop. Because Paul's not a dummy. He knows you're going to face that for the rest of your life. Whether this little thing gets fixed or this political leader changes or this financial situation improves, that's going to go on forever. And so what you really need is not for your circumstances to change, it's for your hope to change. It's to put it in Christ. To put it in the one who's firm and sure. He wants them to know God's will so that it would change them. So, as he said, it would help them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And that phrase has a bit of a bite to it, doesn't it? It makes us a little uncomfortable because what it's suggesting is there's a right response to God's love. You've got to walk worthy of it. It, it sounds like he's saying, you have to do this right. You've got to live right. Because if you don't live right, it's not going to please God. And that is true. 
There is a right response to the message of the gospel. We can't just hear it and then continue to do as we please. It means there's a change. However, I think we misunderstand the heart of what Paul's saying here. He's not trying to frighten the Colossian church into living right. What he's essentially saying to them is that you need to be who you are, church. You need to be who God's made you to be. You need to be consistent with what God has said about you and what God has done for you. Pastor Jeff once said that the Christian life is becoming that which you already are. Anybody a fan of Les Mis? Maybe two people? What? Les Mis? It's so good. One, my favorite character in Les Mis is Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean, if you know anything about this story, he starts out as a, a he gets out of prison right at the beginning. Uh, he's been there for many years for having stolen. And then he's trying to make a life for himself after getting out of prison. It's just not working out. And so he ends up right back in the same position. He steals some candlesticks from a priest. Some silver so he can sell it and so he can kind of make way. And he gets caught. He gets brought back to the house of the priest. But what the priest does is something shocking. He says, actually, you left some candlesticks behind. I've got more for you. The police are expecting the priest to, uh, to kind of rat him out and get him back in prison. But actually, the priest gives more to him. The priest extends grace to Valjean. And after the police leave, he says, I've bought your life now. I want you to go live as though you believe what I've done for you, that you trust in what I've done for you, that you've been changed by what I've done for you. And the gospel's the same. It's God extending grace and love to you and inviting you. Don't go back to being who you were. Be who I've made you to be. Be what I've paid for you. So many of us feel like we're not worthy, and that's true. None of us are worthy of God's love and grace. But Paul isn't saying, walk worthy so you can get God's love. He's saying, because you have been loved, walk worthy of that. Live in that. Do your actions reflect a trust and a love for Jesus? Are you living your life as if what Christ did was real? One of the last things he says here is, he prays for them that they would bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. If you're growing in the knowledge of God's will and you're walking it out, then you are going to bear fruit in your life. And I would just remind you that if you are bearing fruit, then that means you are displaying the fruit, you're not producing the fruit. Does that make sense? When, when God invites you to bear fruit, what he's saying is, I'm going to grow these things in your life by the message of the gospel and by my spirit, and I just want you to bear it. I want you to display it. I don't want you to hide it. I don't want you to cover it. I want it to be clear to the world what I've done for you, so that they can see that I want to do it for them. That's why he prays for them that they would bear fruit in every good work is because Paul knows God has done something special in you, church. And God wants the whole world to see it. He wants you to be a display rack of his grace and his love and his mercy. And the interesting thing is that the more you share your faith, the more the truth of the gospel compounds in your life and you, be, you become more fixed by it. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is from the book of Philemon where he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith would have its full effect, that you would know every good thing that's in you for the sake of Christ. Are we trying to earn our way? Are we trying to prove ourselves? Are we trusting in the blood of Jesus and allowing his grace to be on display in our life? Are we showing people, yeah, we are sinners. We are broken. We've all made mistakes, but Christ has loved us. 
Look at what he's done for me. We can't in our own strength make these kinds of changes. And so I want to close just by looking at how the church in Colossae was strengthened by gospel power. Here's how the letter closes, or this section closes, I should say. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. If you could do something for me this week, go memorize verses 13 and 14. That's the gospel. That's a story of what he's done for you. When you're filled with him and you grow in him, it makes you stronger, it gives you power, it gives you endurance to live out this life that he's called you to. But that power can only come by grace. In Zechariah 4, we read this. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. What an incredible picture Zechariah paints for us of a mountain that is being leveled because you're shouting grace, grace to it. Something being changed because you're declaring the truth of grace. And what God's saying in this passage to Zechariah, to Zerubbabel, is saying, you can't get this done. You can't move the mountain. You can't make the changes. But I can. So come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The hope of the Christian faith is not that we save ourselves, it's that God has saved us in his son. It's not that we teach ourselves, it's that God teaches us. It's not that we grow ourselves, God grows us. And so to every challenge, every roadblock we face, we should shout grace to it. Grace to this habit in my life that I can't just break off. Grace to this relationship that just doesn't seem like it's in the best place right now. Grace to this schedule that overwhelms me and wears me down. Paul reminds me of three things that the gospel tells us that will give you power to walk besides Christ. The first is he says you've been qualified. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has qualified you. He has made you worthy. There's a great story of the man on the middle cross. We just did Easter last week. You remember the story of Christ's crucifixion is he's on the middle cross and there are two guys besides him. And this, the way the story goes is that when the man on his uh, left is, is brought into heaven because Christ said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, the angels come up and they say, okay, we've got a few questions just to make sure you're in the right place. Could you explain to us the doctrine of the Trinity? And man says, I, I, uh, I don't know what that is. I, he's like, okay, never mind, let's move on to the next question. Could you explain to us how Christ has atoned for your sin? And he said, I, again, I'm not, I, don't, I don't know how all that works. I'm not a, a theology guy. And then the angel starts going, well, hang on, hang on. Let me get my boss, okay, because this is, I don't know what's going on here. So let me, let me go get someone. Second angel comes along and they start asking him more questions. And he says, look, I don't know why I'm here other than the man on the middle cross said that I could come. The man on the middle cross has qualified that man. And the man on the middle cross has qualified you if you trust in him. Doesn't matter what you know, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how accomplished you are, you are qualified by the blood of Christ, by his gift to you as an act of grace. 
If I asked you, what does God think of you? And your mind fills with, okay, well, he likes me, but he's also disappointed with me and he's frustrated with me. No, that's what you think of you. When God looks at you, he only sees Christ. Just think about that for a minute. Just, I know we're tight on time, but this is so important. When God looks at you, he sees the perfection of Christ Jesus. He sees a son whom he loves. When when you read in scripture, him talking about Jesus and the father's voice from heaven booms out and says, this is my son, son in whom I'm well pleased. He's saying that about you because that's what Christ has bought for you. That's what he's qualified you for. But God has also delivered you. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You've been delivered out of the domain of darkness. Some of you today, you feel like you're in darkness. You feel like you're stuck. You feel like you're in bondage, slavery. But the truth of the gospel is no, you've been delivered. Sin can sometimes be like a prison for your mind. It can keep you from seeing. Think think about if you're in a dark room, there's no lights. You can't see anything around you. You don't know where you are. You don't know what's going on. And so Christ has delivered you from the domain of darkness so that you can see. So that you can see where it is you're living. You can see who is around you. Christ has brought light on what matters and what the true shape of things are. So if you feel like you're stuck in darkness, you need to remind yourself you've been given a new life. You don't need to remain in that darkness. C.S. Lewis says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. Staying in the slums with the mud pies is for people who have forgotten that they've been delivered to infinite joy, that you've been invited to walk with the risen Christ. Don't be easily pleased. Live in the reality of your deliverance. Lastly, he says they've been transferred. Ephesians 2.19 says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You have been transferred into his family. There's a story that always sticks with me about a a family that had adopted a young boy. They were missionaries and they had adopted a young boy out of uh, poverty and out of some really rough situations. They brought him home, and they lived in a really nice home. They would always have their fridge stocked with uh, Coca-Cola, cans of Coke, and they had some other kids that would love, and and the boy would see the other kids going into the fridge and taking a can of Coke. And so what the the boy would do is he would go, and he would grab as many Cokes, and then he would hoard them in a, a corner of his room. Because he was frightened that, like, I, I want to have that, and I need to have that. So he would take it. Because his whole life had been about living in poverty and thinking that I don't get stuff. So anything that I want, I'm going to have to take. And eventually the father realized about this. He saw that the kid was doing this, and he said, you don't need to hoard anymore. Because you're my son, and those cokes belong to you. The same way they belong to any of my other children. Everything that is in this house, everything that is, this family has is yours. Do you know that that's what the Father in heaven says about you? You don't need to strive and hoard and search for meaning in other places. Everything that is Christ's is now yours. You have been transferred into his family. You were adopted. 
You don't need to be a Christian by proxy, by hanging out with other Christians and hope that it rubs off on you. Everything that you've ever seen in a Christian that you admire and that you think is beautiful, that same stuff is on offer to you in Christ. You need to be filled with this knowledge. You need to be filled with the one who is the fullness of God. And I do too. It doesn't matter this morning that this doesn't necessarily describe us perfectly. What matters is that Christ has done these things. And that we need to return to it as a church again and again and remind ourselves of who it is we are here to worship. Who it is whose story we are here to hear. Paul's prayer in chapter 1 in just this first section is the opening salvo to a letter that is going to unpack for us a Jesus who has saved us, a Jesus who has brought us life, a Jesus who wants to strengthen us and walk beside us, a Jesus who is over all things, in all things, above all things, for his glory and our good. And church, we need to remember this. So here's how I want to close this morning. I'm going to pray Paul's prayer for us. So wherever you are, I just want you to close your eyes. We're going to pray together this great prayer of Colossians 1 that throughout this series, our hearts would be made alive. Father, this morning we are asking that we may be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that we might be fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God that we as the family of Chapel Street would be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy and that we would give thanks to you who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Father, you have delivered us from the domain of darkness. You have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.